Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How you doing, Matt? Fast. That was a quick answer, man. You were there armed and ready, weren't you? Yeah, we've been trying to get... We're planning to go to the States. My family, we're going to go to the States for a couple of weeks in August. And boy, I've never had to do so many different checks and balances to try and make it work. It's a pain in the ass. It'd probably be a lot easier just not to go. But I'm sitting outside where hopefully this will work because... Once this lockdown happened, it's just like my cell signal got crap. The internet is crap. It's not, not, I'm not thrilled about it, but can you hear me all right now? Yeah, man. I got you loud and clear. So, I mean, how have you been managing with, with business and keeping in contact with all the people you need to be keeping in contact with? Has it been a nightmare? It it has a, it's just the times of day you know and you talk if you're talking technology wise it's like you know it's hit or miss so when I'm calling people in the states I'm usually calling in the evening when you know the internet's not so bad and stuff I mean it's I've been able to communicate with pretty much everyone quite easily it's just obviously to do something like this and a couple months ago I did like a live stream of a performance of this record I put out in. I, I got really lucky with that because that was worked out pretty flawlessly using the Facebook Live. But anytime I've been trying to do live streams, DJ stuff on Instagram, it's just a nightmare. So, 
but Instagram's not really the best for live streaming. It's just the easiest because everyone's on Instagram. But yeah, it's, it's it's all been good. You know, I can't complain. My family is safe and healthy, and so can't complain. I think it's been like a a very specific journey for each specific individual and their specific set of circumstances. For me, it's been really tough because I'm single. A lot of my friends are married with kids. And I feel like everybody I've spoken to who has a family has actually found this process really quite positive and, and rewarding in many ways because it's given a lot of people quality time with their partners, with their kids, with everything else removed. Whereas from my side of the fence, it's like all my sort of social life and activity is based around DJing out and about and touring and doing these, these podcast things, but face to face and connecting with people on that level. And when you take all that away, I was like, fuck, it's just me in a flat in London. And even when you're in London, all the kind of positives that London has to offer have been taken away as well. So it's been a mad yeah, time. Yeah, I feel for you, man. I feel for you. And that's the thing, is especially with... I've got some friends in New York who, you know, one a good friend of one of our... One of the Pullman Criminal... One of, well, pretty much the Pullman Criminal DJ who comes on tour with us. He um, He lost a leg years ago and... He's he's not found it easy either, and you know I think the mental health side of things is what you got to really pay attention to. And I mean, with my daughter, it's just been really kind of imperative to just talk about feelings and stuff, even though she doesn't want to. Yeah. <laughs> and just you know, I talked to her about. It. I said, "How are you feeling?" She's like, "Well, it's all shit, isn't it?" So she's definitely learned to drop some some new words she shouldn't <laughs> be saying, but we kind of allow it. But yeah, I mean, I, I've got friends that you know don't have you know or like yourselves they're, they're by themselves and it hasn't been easy i mean and especially now that things are sorting slowly trying to go back to normal it's, it's it just feels odd you know and it's i just feel bad for that it came down to this that it got so bad but you know can't point fingers because it's just hard enough these days to even know what to believe yeah. You know, it depends, depends what newspaper or news show you're watching and stuff. And cause the conspiracy people are just loving it and going to town. And yeah, it's, 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 it's a state of fear that I'm just really trying to just not let my daughter feel it. She feels it. How old, it, how old's your daughter fast? She's nine years old. So, right. she's, kind so of, she's definitely old enough to be aware of everything that's going on and obviously probably missing her friends a lot and. She knows all about it, and you know that's the one thing we kind of got her. We got her. She has an iPad, so we hooked her up with the FaceTime and her Roblox to be able to play with her friends and stuff. But it's not the same. And then the problem with that is that just eats up the bandwidth in the house. So whenever she's on her games or FaceTime with her friends, we can't go on the internet. And my wife is working from home, so you know it's things have been easier. But you know we're surviving. You know, so we're not. I taught her. I told my daughter how to ride a bike. So I guess that's one of the many good things that's happened during this lockdown. But yeah, it's just odd. You know, I do I do bookings for this rest these restaurants in London called the Rum Kitchen, and you know all the DJs were basically just instantly put out of work. You know, you're a DJ yourself, and anyone who's live musicians, it's like our world is just kind of shut down for a long time. It seems, but. We finally, with the government's guidelines to be able to have music playing in restaurants again, it was great to be able to get these DJs back into the rum kitchen. But of course, 
one of the locations is in Soho and the, within two hours of the DJ playing at a very low volume, the council came in and shut them down and basically said, you can't have DJs or we're going to close the restaurant. So their 43 page guidelines on having music is definitely not written by someone who I would say even listens to music because, you know, one of the rules is you can't have music above speaking volume. Fair enough. And the good thing about that is the more people are drinking, the louder they get. So the music can get a bit louder. So of we course. can work with that. But the fact that one of the guidelines said, you cannot play any music that encourages singing or dancing. Yeah. And it's odd because I've been DJing around at these places the past few weeks, you know, and there's hosts that basically have to go up to people when they're just kind of moving in their chair, eating some food. And they go up and be like, can you please not dance? So it's just all strange it's all just a strange new world i've been holding back because a lot of friends of mine who dj have been you know saying to me why don't you get online and do like twitter or sorry not twitter twitch twitch and all that live streams but for me i mean if you're a musician i can see why you do that but for me as a dj i, I see so little value and point in visually live streaming a set like I've been making mixes like I do every week for my Patreon page and I'll put them up for people to listen to. But the idea of watching a DJ on a screen and you don't have any crowd in front of you to, to vibe off for me just feels like a really, I don't know, a fruitless task. Where do you stand on the whole like live streaming of DJ sets? I think like a lot of my DJ friends, we were loving it. We're not loving it, but we were enjoying it the first month or so into this you know i was doing different things because this like you said there's so many djs doing it and there's so many real good djs doing it that you know i'm i like djing i wouldn't consider myself in any upper tier of like skilled djs like a mr thing or you know some of these awesome djs a lot of them being from the uk but i was doing different things so i was like i did a stream one night where I just played the Apocalypse Now soundtrack. Amazing. I think I saw that on your Instagram feed, yeah. Which is cool because the vinyl of it is basically just, it's a double vinyl that's just the whole movie. I mean, they got all the dialogue in it. Oh, wow. So it was amazing, and I didn't, it's just one of my favorite vinyls I own. Is The vinyl of it's just awesome. But um, then I was doing some streaming for the Rum Kitchen, uh, which was cool, and, and I enjoyed it, but, you know, there's maybe 100 people check it out for, like, five seconds. Yeah. So it's like, what's the point? And, <laughs> you know, I so a lot of, but for when I did my little, I have this record I put out called Sadaje that's kind of like an ambient instrumental record and um, very much like kind of Blade Runner meets uh, Brian Eno and stuff, and I wanted to do a performance of that um, I was supposed to do one for this friend of mine who does live sessions, but he obviously got canceled because of from because of lockdown. So I said, okay, I want to do it over Easter weekend, and that was great because I was able to actually do a performance, and I was really surprised at how many people actually were watching it live and watched it later, and it was it was fun to do, but it was also. You know, like I said, I got lucky because Facebook Live was the only one that I could broadcast it live in stereo, which was like essential because I'm doing balance sweeps with the sounds and sound effects and stuff. So I really just got lucky with it because any other time I've been trying to do live streams, you know, it's been cut off or the buffer gets all screwed up. So it's made it complicated. But like, I think at the same time, 
me and a bunch of other DJ friends who've been doing it just said, yeah, there's no point. It's an interesting it, record, that one is, mate, and I really enjoyed it. And it reminded me in, in many ways, you should probably check this out. You know the guy from Limp Biscuit, Wes Borland? Yes. So he's he's done a similar couple of records in a very similar vein of like soundtracky, ambient, electronic, purely instrumental records under the, the moniker Crystal Machete. And it's it's right. it's a really similar totally you know, it's a million miles away from Limp Biscuit. Um and it's fantastic and it's you know, that kind of perfect headphone record that you can just put on like with yours and just get lost in it. And, you know, it's funny cause I, I, you know, every now and then I like, I've always been, I've never really been a fan of Limp Bizkit. They've got some tracks that, you know, are definitely, they rock, but I've always been a fan of Wes. I always think he's just a very unique, awesome guitar player. So I, the past couple of months, I actually got to confess I was watching footage of him playing in Rio and playing all over the world, you know, with him playing guitar. Only when he's playing, I know that he left the group for a bit, but yeah, I'll definitely check that out. I mean, I always love Brian Eno's ambient stuff and Van Gellis Blade Runner is like my favorite soundtrack in the world. So yeah, I've always, I always collected all these instrumental, you know, these songs I was writing that were never going to be for FLC or even for some other project, but then I kind of compiled it the end of last year and put it out as sort of like this kind of audio meditation thing, which is yeah, yeah, when I, I did that. when I did my live stream, I, I liked using the dialogue of Alan Watts over it because it was it just kind of seemed like it was fitting for what everyone was going through at the time. But I think early on, you know, in, in April, people were still kind of like going with the flow of the lockdown, trying to make the most of it, almost in certain ways, excited. Are you still there, bud? You just cut off a second ago. Fast. Now oh, here we are, middle of July. Sorry, dude. Uh, you just cut off after you said pe- people were excited about the start of lockdown. I don't know what happened. Your phone just dipped out, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, it Rewinding. I, I felt like that right. as well. I was like, at the start of it, I was like, this is kind of a social experiment. It's a time to pause, reflect. And for the first month, maybe even into the second i was happy but then it's like the longer it went on and the less likely anything seems to be you know getting back on track the more crushing it's been but yeah sorry where were you at what were you saying yeah no i think exactly the same thing you basically just summed up what i was saying um because i it was like you know as far as like homeschooling my daughter we like set up all sorts of little games out in the backyard and to do pe and all that and it was it was it was almost borderline fun for a while, but then after a few weeks of that, it just wore off. And then May was just sort of a non-month. But it's amazing how fast the time has gone. I mean, here we are, middle of July, and it's like, I just don't, yeah, I don't see where it's going. I mean, just, you know, I booked a flight to the States a month ago, and it's just been, I mean, there isn't a week that goes by. There isn't something has, has gotten canceled or moved or changed. And I know in the States, um, you know, the numbers are rising. Everyone's getting all upset. And, you know, I, I don't know at what point are you supposed to just say, oh, well, I'm just going to hunker down in my house and just make sure I live. Or are you going to actually say, well, I need to live. So as long as I can kind of play it as safe as I can, you know, that's the better option. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I'm, again, I'm trying to do all this through my daughter's eyes to try and make it as least, you know, harmful for her mental health as possible. And I think that's, 
important, but it's also, it's hard. It's not easy, you know? And for, as far as the bands and stuff, you know, with FLC, we had loads of gigs canceled. Like every other band, we had tours set up for the, for February that have been pushed to the fall that who knows if, you know, fall next year, who knows if those will even happen. And it's just strange because obviously I think as humans, they need to listen to music. They need to get out. They need to dance. They need to sing songs. They need to go to concerts and be close to people and all that. And that just seems to be the big no-no at the moment. And at what point is it going to get back to normal? I don't know. I think as well, like for me, the idea of socially distancing at a gig is like soul destroying. Like I would sooner just wait until you can mingle and enjoy it as you should, even with pubs. Cause I'm a big fan of the hospitality industry. I worked in it for many years. Obviously when you DJ in that world, you're a part of it anyway. And you know, coming yeah. up in the clubs in New York, like it's a lifestyle around that. And that doesn't just mean like drinking and drugging and partying. It's the social element and the, the community that forms around these venues and bars and, I have been going out to pubs and restaurants now they've reopened, but some of them are so laborious in their approach to, you know, the safe distancing rules. You've got to like get the app. You've got to download that. You've got got to order from your phone. Everywhere has their own rules. And it's almost like, oh, this isn't, (laughs) this isn't enjoyable in any way. I'd sooner just have a couple of friends around to the garden and have some cans out there, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that even with restaurants open, it just seems kind of like this somber feeling. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> who knows? I mean, I, I, you know, I hope that it's just over the course of the next few months, it just kind of loosens up a bit more. There isn't anything crazy. I mean, with all the protests that were going on and everything, you would have thought that these numbers would have skyrocketed. And I think in the States, when I'm seeing how, you know, they're being reported on the news as if it's just, through the roof like we're still in they're still in their first phase and it's like you're just getting worse you know the first wave of the you know <clears throat> the virus but it's it's just weird the whole thing is just odd i was hoping to do one of these face to face with you man and uh, i want to give a shout out nice. i want to give a shout out to our mutual friend dawn for uh for introducing us and setting this up and i'll tell you the quick story of how i met dawn and then maybe we can you know jump into to your you know flc and all the rest of your story but so i was out in amsterdam at the end of a tour which i just completed in february with a band called zach sabbath and that is like it's yeah i know them <laughs> you know the crew so you know joey and blasco and and zach wild and those guys so i was out with them DJing before their set just playing like you know classic rock and metal and party tunes just to kind of get the crowd amped up and then the last show was uh at the what's the venue that dawn works at in amsterdam paradiso Paradiso. the last show was at that and so the next day i booked two days at the end of the tour to stay on in amsterdam and just kind of cut loose and and have some fun because i don't know about you but when i finish a tour i hate to just return straight away to normality i find it a bit too much of like a brutal post-tour come down shock so i quite like to take a couple of days afterwards to like unwind in the city that i'm in and you know reflect on the journey and everything so i booked these two days in amsterdam all excited to have a good time out on my own and then i woke up the next morning after the show and had a text from a friend who sent me this news article and it was a friend of mine who was a previous guest on this show she was like a a clinical therapist and a psychologist and just a beautiful person and she'd been murdered by her by an ex-partner and so i 
I got the link to this news story that morning and it was just the most crushing, devastating, heartbreaking news. I'm on my own in this city. Obviously, I'd been traveling on the bus with all these guys, so I'd had this family around me for two weeks and then I'm there, like, isolated, alone, processing this just horrific news. And so I just went to this Irish pub on the corner of that square where the Paradiso is and just started having some drinks and just, like, basically crying into my pint, you know, like, really heavy stuff. And Dawn was at the bar and i guess she could sense i was sad so she just struck up a conversation and it was one of those moments where initially i was like oh, i really don't want to talk to anyone because i'm grieving and going through this but she was really there for me in a moment when i needed someone and she ended up just basically taking me under her wing for the day and we we had a bunch of drinks and she let me stay at her house and we just kind of like formed this really fast sweet friendship in a really short space of time and it's lovely and she was amazing and just like you know there when i really needed someone and then she was like well i should get some people that i know onto your show and she was like the first person i can think of is fast because you and him would hit it off like a house on fire and i was like awesome and then uh, obviously with everything that's been happening because we've been talking about doing this since like March, For months yeah i guess exactly but yeah, what a sweetheart she is. How did you guys yeah, meet? Yeah, she's amazing. So you met Cooper then? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a great dog. He's a great dog. Um, yeah, well, we've we've known Dawn for many years through Paradiso because we try we try to play at the Paradiso maybe once a year, every two years, and we've been very fortunate to play there actually two nights in a row the past few years. So we've always had great gigs there, and she's always been super kind and cool and um hooks us up with the after parties for doing some DJing and stuff and uh yeah she just she she's been super helpful with me when I put out my Sadazi record and got me some you know set me up with you and set me up with a couple other people which is is very cool I mean that's that must be her Irish side right yeah ma'am that generosity just- that spirit that warmth and also as well it's a big part of I think people who are lifers who, uh, you know, when people think of the music industry, they obviously think of the performers. But obviously behind the performers is the, you know, the tour managers, the road crew, the venue staff, these people that are like the blood and sweat of, of, of this industry that have obviously been affected arguably even more so than the, the artist because the artist can hopefully at least generate some kind of either free merch or like streaming you know live performances they can hopefully generate a little bit of income whereas the people who are behind the scenes they don't have that infrastructure that fan base and they're just kind of left there like obviously some of them are on furlough and things but it must have been devastating for so many people in the industry behind the scenes it's rough yeah and I mean, yeah, I know with, with our crews and stuff, you know, they're just, just all, everyone, they're like, we're all in the same boat here where none of us are having any work. I mean, those that are fortunate that have <clears throat> radio shows and stuff like Huey and, and Frank, the drummer, has radio, have radio shows, that's cool because there's always going to be radio. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, someone like Dawn is just a, a unique soul in the industry and she's always been someone we really look forward to hanging out with when we get to Amsterdam and she's definitely fun. So we, we, we're very fortunate to have her in our lives and you as well, it seems. So that's cool. That's, that's, that's what's so cool about, you know, again, music and just being in this industry where you meet people at moments when you don't really know that you need to meet these people. And it's whether people say it's fate or whatever, but it's, um, 
Yeah, there's a lot of special people out there, and special, and not in the sense in the UK. Whenever I try to say someone's special, it has the wrong meaning here, or a different <laughs> meaning here. So, I mean, that's why I tend to say unique. But yeah, Dawn is um, she's she's a one of a kind. Her and Cooper. I was very lucky to meet Cooper when we were leaving Amsterdam. Our DJ left his headphones, and so we went back to pick him up. And of course, Dawn said, "Oh yeah, I got him." So it was amazing. And then I met Cooper, and he's a wild dog. So I always love seeing her. Instagram posts with Cooper near some lake <laughs> in Amsterdam, but yeah, she's um, yeah, she's cool. She's one of the she's one of the good ones. And again, I feel bad because I know over the past few months we've been in contact, and she's been sending me pictures of what Paradiso looks like with these new rules they're trying to do for concerts, where it's basically just a bunch of seats. Yeah, and a venue like the Paradiso is just you, you can't have seats there. You know, there's the balconies, but on the floor. Having seats there is just so odd because the stage is so high and, you know, capacities and venues are cut two thirds. And that just, you know, it makes it really hard to have that vibe of a show and the energy. So I don't know. We'll don't see know what, what happens, do. eh? <laughs> yeah, we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, for Fun Loving Criminals, it's actually kind of worked out because because we don't live in the same towns, you know, Hugh and I used to live together in New York, so we could write music really quickly and bounce ideas off each other. But now we're all spread out in the UK. So, you know, we tried years ago with an album, just emailing parts to each other. And it's it just, the album didn't sound like an album to us. And we, there's some good songs on it, but we're not the biggest fans of playing that album where at least now it's like we can kind of, because we're forced in our homes and we all have home studios, we've kind of been able to put together this new record we've been working on slowly, but it's come together quite quickly. So hopefully get it out next year if there's and get some touring going if we if we can, which is would be good. I hope so, man. Well, hopefully as well, I'll get out to a show at the Paradiso. Me, you, and Dawn can uh, can hang out out there and see the town and bring this story full circle. Little, oh yeah, little I mean, moments Paradiso. like that. I'm holding yeah, it's out a great for place. <laughs> it's a great place to see shows. We always try to, we see who's playing. I mean, we've seen Cypress Hill in Amsterdam. We've seen a bunch of bands perform there. It's just, you get a real unique show out of bands when they play in that town. But, you know, we've had, we've had similar vibes in, in other cities as well. So it's not just Amsterdam, but, um, I mean, I think everyone is just dying to go to any show at this point. <laughs> but only when it, it can be fun. I mean, it's just remarkable to me that it's like all the government needs to do is get on the news, you know, throw out some numbers, and they can basically do what they want. And I think for the first lockdown, it made sense what they wanted to do. I mean, I disagree with certain methods, but I think, all right, we'll go along with it. But I just don't think the people in general are going to, you know, fall for it if they say we got to go into a second lockdown. I mean, if this is just really messed up people's mental health, people's, any bit of security anyone's had. And I don't know. I don't know how they could have done it differently because, again, it was this is some virus that they didn't really know much about. So trying to just keep it light, which seems like it's not possible. You must have some pretty good club stories from back in the day. Um, was it the limelight? Was the venue you used to work at, and was that with Huey? Yeah, that, yeah, that's where I that's where I met Huey. That was the first. I mean, I went to college at Syracuse University in upstate New York, and I was there for like, you know, a year and a half. Got kicked out because I was basically not going to school. I was just being in bands and enjoying like the alternate side of going to college. And 
I moved into New York City and I'm not really, I don't even really remember how I decided, oh, I want to work at this club, but I, I ended up going to the limelight and was just amazed. And this was like early, ni- this is like 1990 and house and techno was kind of taking over. And what I love was, you know, this first night I went there was a Friday night and it was madness. It was house and techno music and, you know, all the different rooms they had at the limelight. I mean, it was thousands of people crashed, crushed into this, you know, church that they renovated into a nightclub with a killer sound system and girls in cages and club kids everywhere. I mean, it was madness. I'd never seen anything like it. And then I went back, I think two nights later on the Sunday and it was all rock and roll because Sunday nights is rock and roll church. So it was basically, you know, like kind of your raging machine and Nirvana on the main dance floor with again, thousands of people but then in other rooms, there was like a classic rock room and there was just all different kinds of rock music. And I said, wow, this is actually a really cool club because it's all different music. And then as the weeks went on, I would go back on like a Wednesday or on a, like a Thursday was a good night because it was house music in the main room, but it was like reggae and dance hall in one of the other rooms. And then it was like kind of funk and soul. So I just said, this is, this is so great. And that's totally lost now because, you know, yeah. venues, it's like house music. It's pretty much one type of music all the time in a, in a lot of venues and clubs. And I don't even know clubs that are that big anymore apart from Ibiza. But that's where I met Huey. He was a bartender. I ended up getting a job answering phones and being a coat checker. And, um, yeah, it was like the first thing he said to me was, Fun Loving Criminals, that's the name of the band. And I thought, cool. You know, if it was a friend of his graffiti crew, kind of summarized what we wanted to do with music. You know, we didn't want to start a band because we liked one type of music. We wanted to start a band because we liked all different types of music. You know, I came from this electronic background. Huey came from this blues background, but we had a mutual love for hip hop. So we kind of just blended all the things. And, you know, it's one here we are almost 30 years later. And we're still doing it, which is pretty remarkable. So we're blessed in, in many ways that we've been able to do music that we really enjoy performing and writing. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a pretty crazy story. We, we worked at all these different nightclubs by this, this one owner, Peter Gation, this Canadian fellow who had an eye patch. Amazing. Um, yeah, and he was, he was a super, you know, he wasn't the type of guy you wanted to really talk to when he was your boss. He was very intimidating. But at the same time, over the years, as I've come to know him a bit better, especially nowadays, yeah, he's a sweetheart. He really was was doing something that was was unheard of. And nowadays, you know, you just couldn't do anymore, especially with how clubs and bars are run. But he had he had something real special there for a long time. I mean, it opened in the early 80s. So and it was still the limelight through, I think, the latter part of the 90s. And then it just changed. And now they're all closed but there was some great you know palladium was another one of his venues that now is like dorms for myu and he had a re- uh, renovated train tunnel from back in the days when new york city had trains going through the, the city they had this it's a huge tunnel he opened a club called the tunnel and that's where um Sean Combs, you know, Puff Daddy did his Mecca parties on Sunday nights that were just the greatest hip hop parties ever because you'd have Biggie Smalls and Wu-Tang Clan performing there. You'd have Funkmaster Flex DJing and Kid Capri. And it was 
as far as hip hop went, it was it was next level. So it was just really impressive to work in these venues at, at this time when it was just a peak of nightclubs in New York and God knows when they're going to even be able to open clubs and stuff again. But that those times I look back on the nineties and think, wow, what a great easy decade. <laughs> I've never been to New York fast and I've always been obsessed with it. I need to go because so much street art, music like if you think of all the dominant genres in contemporary music whether it's you know hip-hop or dance or rock or punk whatever uh, and cinema and art it all seemed to happen in this one city at this well i guess kind of the late 60s going into the early 70s was when it all first exploded but then over time just new movements new generations new eras kept ushering in and i'm always obsessed with hearing the stories of that city at specific times. So you were there from kind of 90 till the mid nineties, I presume, if not longer, what was it like in that time period and what was going on? What were the, the character, who were the characters? What was the sort of the overall vibe that defined the city through your eyes at that time? I mean, I lived out, I lived in the suburbs, you know, I was, I wasn't born raised in New York city, but I lived in the suburbs from 82 until I moved into the city in 90 and lived there till probably 2005, six before I moved over here. Um, the eighties were great because, you know, you, you, we were young. So we'd take a train in and we'd go see like the Beastie Boys perform with like Murphy's Law opening up for them or, you know, Public Enemy and just crazy shows. And we'd go to record stores and, you know, it was, it, there was always this kind of intimidation factor with New York and with the people as well. And it was just, but still it was like, so there was so much energy that it was just, you wanted to be there. And, you know, it was just an amazing time in the eighties when I moved there in the nineties, it was, you know, it was still a really just great city to live in. I think what was crazy was you still had like mob hit, hits every now and then. So you'd be walking up the street, we'd be riding BMX bikes all over New York and you'd see a car blown up. And it probably wasn't even a mob, hit, but you just assumed it was because of John Gotti running around doing all his madness during those, those couple decades. But it was just a really cool time because everyone sort of met in these clubs, especially like the limelight stuff where you'd have music, musicians, artists, you know, all in different kind of genres, but everyone would be getting together, having a good time. And it was just a really cool collective of people that were all sort of, you know, had the same angle, which is just not to have to get real jobs. Yeah. You know, and that was the thing is I met, some, you know, some really, really amazing people in, in that decade that, you know, to this day, I'm still friends with. And now, you know, a lot of them have normal jobs now, but it's, it's still just to be able to look back on that time. You know, again, when I think of like my daughter, you know, when she's going to get older and think about it, how hard is life going to be for kids growing up? You know, where are they going to find this inspiration? You know, and it's like, you know, hopefully they will, you know, I don't want to be all morbid and stuff, but it just seems like, uh, it seems like for me personally, up until September 11, 2001, life was easy. Do you feel and like then, that was the exact moment when everything shifted, do you? Were you in New York it, at that it, time it, as well? Yeah, I was in Brooklyn. I'm, I remember, and it, I got my odd 9-11 stories. This is, this is an interesting one, but it was like, I on September 10th, I was in visiting my family down in North Carolina and my dad 
um, had a flagpole. My dad was in the U.S. Navy for a while. He was a very patriotic guy, but he's also a very clever guy. But he had a flagpole. But he was upset because the flagpole wasn't tall enough to fly a flag at half-mast. Yep. You know how they do that? You know about that? So he said, oh, I really need to get a taller flagpole, taller flagpole. And we just had this discussion about, well, it was like a life discussion and about, you know, honoring the past and, and stuff and learning from the past and all that. But it really focused on this flagpole not being tall enough. Then the next, that, that evening, I believe, I flew back to New York. And I remember when you fly from North Carolina up to New York City, you fly right by the Twin Towers. So you could see all of lower Manhattan. And I always would look out the window. I'd always make sure I'm sitting on the left side of the plane. And there I am looking out the window. There's the skyline. And I remember I had been there for a few weeks. So when I got back to Brooklyn, I went and partied with my friends all night. Didn't go to bed till like five in the morning. And then, you know, a friend came over at 830 in the morning, banging on our door saying, you're not going to believe this. And we went running over to the promenade in Brooklyn Heights to basically just watch the second building fall down. And it was just like, this is absolute madness. But it seemed like up until that point, there wasn't this like living in fear thing. At least maybe I was lucky growing up in the suburbs and stuff. I never really was like live in fear or worry about doing things because of a fear element. You know, yeah, I knew if I, in the eighties when I was walking around New York or Times Square in the middle of the night, you know, shit could be kind of hectic. But at the same time, I didn't not go into New York because I was afraid that was going to happen. And after September 11th, there just seemed to be so much pushing of fear that, it just seems like it hasn't gotten any better. And, and the latest one is a pandemic. So it's like, it's just it's bizarre. I guess it's using that fear as well to usher in subtle, you know, whether it's a new law or just a new attitude or headspace or approach, subtly tweaking and changing so that freedoms are becoming less and less. And as you say, this kind of oppressive cloud just like coming down more and more and more. It makes you really start to question things more. I've always been into conspiracy theories and my friend sometimes like, yo, you're crazy, but there's, I always find little bits of truths in them. And I also am smart enough to see where, okay, they're going off on a rant now, yeah. but a lot of stuff just doesn't add up with anything, especially with, you know, nine 11, but, I'm not going to be the one going on there putting the blame on things. Until I can see proof and evidence that's, like, irrefutable, I'm not going to really, you know, what, what am I going to do about it? You know, and there's thousands of people that are, are in the architects and engineers for 9-11 saying that, you know, the World Trade Center 7 came down through demolition and stuff. And it's all great. It's all great that these people are working their asses off to try and bring the truth out. And if they can actually get that truth to be known but it just seems like this the odds are against them in so many ways you know god forbid you put out any video on youtube that questions anything they just cut you off so it, it seems like all oh, the freedoms are getting cut off a lot more and again i go back to the 90s when it was like great you could smoke weed on the streets not really get arrested it was wonderful <laughs> and it's like you know nowadays it's like you gotta you gotta be careful doing anything you gotta wear face masks that don't even stop the spread but it's safer than not wearing face masks. How did you feel like in the, the days and then the weeks and, you know, perhaps months as well? How did you feel like the city 
dealt with what had happened and how it changed the mood in the city and and people's attitudes and uh you know behavior like what was the wake of that you know i think i think with people like one thing new yorkers know and people that know about new york is it's such a multicultural city but yet they're all new yorkers so like it never really was a question of like are you black are you white are you Asian? Are you Jewish? Are you Muslim? Are you Christian? Whatever. It was just, we're all New Yorkers. And the, I started getting angry just because once they brought the National Guard into New York, they weren't New Yorkers. The National Guard, I don't know where they scooped them up from, upstate New York. They, And I'm not saying they're rednecks or white trash or any of that, but I'm just saying, like, I go to drive into the over the Brooklyn Bridge with a car service that we and my friends, we all used Atlantic Avenue and they were all awesome cab drivers, but they weren't white. So when we would go over to Brooklyn Bridge, the national guard would stop, you know, my driver Felix was my, just a guy I got by random. I never asked him, but it was this guy, Felix, an awesome dude. And he'd always get questioned. They'd always get him out of the car. They'd search him and everything. I'm like, this is a true New Yorker who's lived here as long as I can remember. And yet some crazy National Guardsman is going to just profile him because he's not white. And just it was every time we went over to Brooklyn Bridge, I just stopped taking cabs and I felt bad for the guy because I know if I had one of the white drivers, we never got stopped. So that was pissing me off because it was like, this is New York. So don't New York, it's all different colors, creeds, races, sexual orientations, everything. And we all kind of get along. And it just seems like even nowadays, New York is not that New York anymore. It's like this museum of what New York used to be. And I still enjoy going to New York and visiting, but it's just the city's changed. I mean, everywhere's changed, but it's like, yeah, it was just hard. And that's when I just decided I'm going to, I'm going to leave New York, go over to England. Was that and the that driving was like, factor, was it, in, in you moving over here or one of the main ones? It was just it, it, this it, creatively we were, you know, Hugh and I were all, we're still working, writing records, but we got dropped by EMI, you know, who had put out four of our records. So it was like, it just seemed a lot harder. Everything seemed a lot harder after September 11th. And I'm sure it was, you know, we got dropped in 2000. So it was, it was leading up to that, but it was just, you know, I needed a change because the New York that I fell in love with when I lived in the suburbs and always would go into New York city and the New York, you know, I loved before I even moved to New York in the seventies, I just loved, you know, everything. It was all about getting to New York, but when New York changed, it just seemed like, yeah, I need to get out of the city. So we, we had, the band had obviously done really well in the UK and then the people in the UK had always been so cool with us and our music. So I said, let's try moving over here one summer. And that's, it was like the summer of 2006. It was an awesome summer because it was just beautiful. It was kind of like the past few months, at least here in, in the southeast of England, it's, you know, the weather's been really good. So I said, I don't know what people are talking about with the weather being <laughs> crap here because it was great. But so I moved full time. I moved in like, you know, September of that year at the end of the summer. And then it was just crap. It was just crap weather for like six years. <laughs> yeah. Then you but, found out, oh, they were onto something there. <laughs> yeah. I see what they mean. But, you know, whatever. The past, that's one of the blessings, I think, at least for people that live in the Southeast, is the weather's been quite good. I don't, can't speak for the rest of the country, but it's been quite good during all this 
So I've managed to get out to the beach, although not Bournemouth, not one of the beaches that have 50,000 people on it. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's cool, man. How, why, you know, do you, life, why do you think that the, the British crowds in particular took to your bands perhaps more so than, than they did over in the States? I think there's an element of how radio, like Radio 1 in particular, was really supportive of us in the early days because they weren't afraid then. Now it's changed a lot with radio, but they weren't afraid then to play like, you know, a rap song with a guitar solo or a rock song with rapping in it. They weren't afraid, you know, we were being played in, in the hour that Scooby Snacks would be played. You'd hear a Blur song, you'd hear a Faithless song, you'd hear a Massive Attack song, you know, songs all different genres different speeds different you know feels and it was like yeah this is cool this is amazing in the states it wasn't like that you had your hip-hop station you had your rock stations and we did okay with like college radio because they played a bit of everything but it didn't really have the reach outside of that college town you know so you didn't really have a national radio and this is before there was Sirius or xfm and all that stuff so yeah i think we just got really lucky with with radio um the eu was kind of being formed at that time so there was a lot of money going into to countries like in eastern europe to fund having concerts and cultural events so do you guys do really well out there as well we did then you know once the money dried up in the early 2000s then you know the gigs kind of they just stopped having all these festivals but we had such a great run from like 96 until I'd say 2006, we, we were still doing a lot of just playing in all different countries. I mean, in the States, you know, we never had these festivals. We had Lollapalooza, and nowadays there's a lot more. But, you know, up until the early 2000s, there was weren't many big festivals in, in different states in America. And here in England, I mean, every weekend there's two or three different ones, some massive ones, some smaller homegrown ones, and the same goes in Europe. So we were just lucky to be able to play for so many people and, you know, radio was supporting us. So you get people that end up buying your, your albums. This is before streaming, really, and all that. You know, they'd end the up buying your records. <laughs> yeah, they, they ended up buying your records because it was on the radio, not because they, like, dug for it. You know, the drummer in the band, Frank Bambini, he was a fan of the band before, and he, like, actually searched us out and found us. And so he's kind of a more grassroots love for, you know, the music of the band as opposed to, like, you know, going and picking up a now 25 CD and Scooby Snacks happens to be on it or something. So we just got really lucky, you know, and, and we also were, there's a bit of skill there because we were doing concerts and kind of fine tuning our music for a live situation, which we never really knew what that would be like. You know, we knew Huey played guitar. We knew that I wanted to play a bunch of different instruments and we knew we wanted a drummer, but we didn't know how our music would translate to live. And it just seemed like, all right, well, our same philosophy when we were working in the clubs, we're going to take that to to doing performances and going on tour, which is let's make the most of it. Let's live each day to the fullest and try not to have any regrets and, you know, just have a party and have people come to our shows and forget about your problems and let's just have a good time. And I think it really worked. And I mean, nowadays, yeah, we're not necessarily playing the pyramid stage at Glastonbury but we're playing smaller festivals that you still kind of have that vibe and it's people that have kind of grown up with our music that are now bringing their kids to our shows you know where the kids are all in the back at the bar while the parents are up front like in the mosh pit or dancing and boogieing so it's it's 
it's an interesting thing because I just we did not think when we were writing these songs in our apartment and then going and working at the limelight that here we are 30 years later and we're still making music so we're very lucky and we know how lucky we are and we just can't wait like every other band to just get out on tour so once they give us the go ahead if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with juvederm volbella xc and juvederm ultra xc your lip look whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at juvederm.com today that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com add fullness to lips and adults over 21 with juvederm volbella xc or juvederm ultra xc do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Did Tarantino approve the uh, the dialogue sampling in Scooby Snacks? He did. And that was amazing because we, we didn't have any rules for what we were sampling back in those days. I mean, the original demos of Confine Yourself are you know, every song, it's a, it's like it's like our Paul's Boutique. Every song has 12, 13 samples in it that, you know, we'd send the song to Phil Collins' people, uh, a little snippet of a thing. And he, and many times, these the publishers and the songwriters would ask for the lyrics. So we'd send them the lyrics, and then they'd say, no, you can't use my sample. So <laughs> Is that because a lot of the lyrics are, you know, talking about taking drugs and committing crime? Yeah, stories. <laughs> They were stories. They were stories. They were stories that Huey saw through his, you know, glass. His version of these stories, and that was what was was so cool about what I loved about Huey's lyrics. You know, even today, but back in those times, because we were living, growing up in New York City, and you know, you saw a lot of shit there in the nineties. I mean, so yeah, with Tarantino, that was just something. You know, we had gotten a record deal and. I, I was just messing around with music and I had, I think I had Reservoir Dogs on the Laserdisc player and I was, um, I had the P- Pulp Fiction soundtrack. So I just sampled some dialogue as a joke, sent it to Huey. He's like, oh, this is great. We wrote the song, which was, you know, 
wasn't had anything to do with Scooby Doo apart from the name Scooby Snacks. It was about a security guard who worked in the nightclubs who used to give all the security loads of Valium to take on some of the nights that would be very stressful, namely the hip hop parties at Tunnel. And he'd go up to all the security before the night started and saying, you want a Scooby Snack? You want a Scooby Snack? So we thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny to, if you had to go rob a bank? you know, high on Valium. So, and when you get in touch with lawyers and publishers, you know, when you're dealing with movie dialogue, it's much harder because you got to get in touch with the movie studios who wrote the the actual dialogue. You got to get permission from multiple places. Luckily with Tarantino, he pretty much runs everything himself. You know, he has a team of lawyers and stuff, but we just had to go to him and it was great because he was really supportive and we were super thankful. And his lawyers said, oh, you you need the right, that you wrote the song with him, which to us, we never had a problem with because he wrote the dialogue. So it's like in, in the like track IDs and stuff in the liner notes, it said written with Quentin Tarantino, which we thought was great. I mean, to this day, we've never even met him. Really? Well, it also adds we've- kudos to the track as well. And they both complement each other. Like when you hear that dialogue in your song, it lifts the song, but it also recontextualizes that dialogue in a new setting which suits it and complements it and you know when you hear your song you it makes me want to go and then watch reservoir dogs or pulp fiction you know yeah and that's i mean that's what's what's really why we're so blessed with that song because that obviously that had a big part of if that dialogue wasn't in that song i'm not sure it would have been played on radio one as much as it was i mean that was at a time when pulp fiction was just oh, huge yeah, yeah. you know so and it was it was great because his soundtracks are always great. It's always a mixed mash of different music that he listened to growing up, and you know we really thought it was great. And he actually turned us on to Robert Rodriguez to try. We wanted to try and get Robert Rod. We wanted Tarantino to do the video. That wasn't going to happen, but <laughs> Tarantino passed it to his buddy Robert Rodriguez to do it. And there was a treatment written up and everything. It just kind of fell through when. Robert Rodriguez realized, hmm, I could spend a long time doing a music video or I could actually go make Desperado. You know, yeah, he can go make feature films. So that didn't work out in the end, but it was still, it was just a great time. The 90s, again, the 90s are great. And there was so much good music coming out, you know, especially you got your grunge music, you got your hip hop, you got the birth of all the electronic music, you know, and you got the mix masses stuff, which was, was cool. Nowadays, it's kind of all the same. Yeah, and film as well, as you mentioned, like it was such an exciting time for Hollywood film, a real like new era of independent filmmakers coming up, like Rodriguez and Tarantino and Jim Jarmusch. And, oh, yeah. I mean, he's just a proper New York like you know icon and institution. Did you see him about much? Was he knocking around when you were in that city at that time? Every now and then. The one, the one funny show we, that everyone seemed to go to and there's like online, you can see there's like the guest list. Someone printed the guest list was for a Radiohead show at um, Irving Plaza in New York. Right. This is this is probably ninety seven, ninety eight, maybe. And the guest list is just phenomenal because it's just anyone from the nineties is is on that list. And Jim Jarmusch was on it. I didn't see him at the show. I didn't see any of these people at the show because I was probably too blazed out of my mind and probably a bit drunk at that time. You know, it was a social get together but it's a great list if you could see it radiohead guest list new york irving plaza if you google that you'll see it it's got like brad pitt it's got madonna it's got u2 because we were touring with u2 at the time of that show so it must have been right around then 
Uh, but the guest is great. And then for some reason, it was my name they put on the list. So it says Fast Plus Two. Amazing. Was so great. Yeah, I was very <laughs> proud of that. And that's rare because I'm not, you know, Huey gets recognized and, and stuff. I never really got recognized, but that was, I got whoever leaked that guest list. I got more emails and phone calls from people going, yo, have you seen that? And it's like, yeah, all right, that's pretty cool. I'm going to have to dig that out, man. Uh, I, w- I want to ask you about John Gotti as well. Did he ever get wind of the King of New York track? Did he ever share any thoughts on that? Did you ever hear anything back? I don't think he did because he was in prison. I know his son did, and I know his son kind of saw it as a, you know, it was it was done out of respect for him. It was, again, one of Huey's stories about trying to, like, break John Gotti out of jail and stuff. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily morally the most you know uh the morally correct thing to do you know because obviously a lot of people would probably say he's a monster and stuff but for us he was an essential character of new york city at the time so it was obvious that we were going to get an inspiration from him for a song and i mean we didn't really have to get permission or anything because it's like in many ways, our songs, especially at that time, could almost be seen as parody. Yeah. But it was definitely not disrespectful of John Gotti, and we, to this day, would never want to disrespect anyone in that, you know, field, if you will. But it was also, that's what, you know, it's, it's what we were doing, was writing, seeing what's going on around us, writing stories to, you know, a music that was a mixed mass of different genres, and you know, we sort of always saw it as like an album. You know, we were always feel like we're an album band. So it's like, it didn't help with the press saying, oh, these wannabe gangsters and stuff. We weren't wannabe gangsters. Because if you listen to, you know, the, any of our albums, yes, there's going to be gangster songs, but then there's also going to be songs about love. There's going to be songs that are, you know, smoky friendly songs and songs, party songs. So it's like, you know, taking little elements and just kind of pigeonholing us saying, oh, they wear suits and they're wannabe gangsters. When it's like, nah, it couldn't be further from the truth. We wear suits on stage, so when our families see pictures of us, we look good. I think Huey's a a unique dude as well because he can come across as tough and street and authentic, but then he can also sing with soul and with, with with blues and with heart. And Yeah, I think that's the thing, the soul part of it is definitely something that was a big influence in, in our band was music that's kind of made you feel a certain way and that was something that yeah he's I mean he is through and through a New Yorker so he's crazy out of his mind but he's also you know he is a, a sweet dude who means well and that's that's important I think and and again it's it's it's, it's kind of rare it's very easy to let egos get out of control especially with lead singers and he's for the most part, down to earth and, <laughs> you know, a good dude. So, Do you two have a good relationship? I think so. You know, it, we again, we've been friends and been through a lot together over 30 years. So, you know, the fact that we still talk to each other, I think is important. I think that's one thing with our band is we never really succumb to the cliched excesses of rock and roll. You know, we smoke weed and we drink booze, but we never really, we never, like, graduated to being cokeheads and being heroin addicts and stuff like that you know it's like we just always sort of just smoke weed you know so we're much more like a cypress hill than a nirvana 
<laughs> yeah, I had Be Real on the show about a year or so ago and just such a a cool character, like just one of the coolest people ever. I mean, who who would you consider to be fun-loving criminals, contemporaries and peers from within the music world because you straddled so many different sounds and you didn't quite neatly fit anywhere, which is what was great about the band, I think. Um, did you have any sort of bands that you came up with that you would look to as part of a, you know, a similar story or path or genre or just a friendship circle? I, mean, I, I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't know nowadays. I know that we did some shows early on with Big Audio Dynamite. So we met Mick Jones and obviously The Clash. I think if you, if there was one band that the Love and Criminals feel similar to more in essence than in actual maybe sound would be The Clash. We just love, we love everything about The Clash to this day. So when we did shows with Mick Jones, I personally was loving it because I love Big Audio Dynamite and I love the electronic influences in Big Audio Dynamite, but I also obviously loved The Clash growing up. And by doing those shows, we kind of got to be friends with Mick a bit, a bit and it, they were great shows. We had good times. Then we were on tour and we met Joe Strummer. And for Huey, I think he was much more like if, you know, I think Huey is the Joe Strummer of Fun Loving Criminals, where I'm the Mick Jones of Fun Loving Criminals. And we did a lot of shows with Joe Strummer. And boy, that was just, just hanging out, drinking whiskey with him and hearing stories and hearing his views on life and stuff, man. It really made a, a big impression on us and just they were the best band and that was like our dream we were like all right we're we're the band that can get the clash to go tour do a reunion tour we can open up it's like dream come true little did we know in our being naive that that just ain't gonna happen you know and now over the years i've done the research to realize yeah okay that definitely would not happen but um they're they're about the only band i think that we would think comes close because you couldn't really pigeonhole the class. Yeah, they were a punk group, but you know, they've done tracks that are, are pop. They've done tracks that are reggae. They've done, you know, rock. And so they're a band, I think just didn't have rules and didn't really have boundaries when it came to writing their music. And, you know, and they were influenced by what was going on around them. And that was similar. I know. And that's also in many ways, a bit arrogant for us to even think that fun love and criminals are in the same league as the clash. But I think you're you know, coming from a similar place, like in terms of your, your, your heart and attitude and your view of music and that, that ability and that want to, you know, delve into a lot of different areas and sounds and. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's new bands, you know, uh, you know, obviously it helps with Frank and Huey having radio shows. They're hearing a lot of new music. I'm a retro guy. So like I love spinning vinyl. And I love playing old music and stuff and all different genres of old music just because you can't get, really get seven inches of a lot of new stuff. You can of some stuff, but not a lot. So, I, you know, I think as far as new bands, I just don't really know many new bands, <laughs> to be honest. I'm kind of just... I'm the same, dude. Just, I'm the same. Yeah. I mean, most of the guests that I get on the show are of a certain age. And because I just feel like, especially with a show like this, where you're just going to be chatting to somebody in depth for, for an hour or so, a lot of the time, like, you know, younger people, newer bands just don't have that same life experience and, and there's much to say. And so I'm not really, you know, actively sourcing younger artists for the show. And then because I'm not doing that, I'm not keeping up to date as much with newer music. And then also really just like an age thing. I think you hit a certain age and you're kind of like, there's so much good old music that I love that I you know, still need to explore and still need to delve back into that 
I can't be bothered to keep up to date with all the new stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I'm always still finding new tracks, you know, from the seventies and eighties that I just never knew about. And that's, that's the thing. So I'm keeping myself busy with that. I'm not really looking for new stuff, but I know Huey and Frank would probably be able to say, Oh yeah, this new band's guy. I know Frank loves rival sons. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Man. They're good. So, They're very Led Zeppelin esque. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. I just feel bad for new bands, especially bands that are going to try and you know make a career out of it nowadays with all that's going on, especially lately. Is just back in the days when we were signed on a major label, they put so much money into us touring. You know that we will it will be lucky if we ever make a penny off of any sales of those first four records, just because the label spent so much money. But it really helped lay the foundation for us to be able to go do tours, you know, even to this day. And, you know, I just don't think bands will have that these days. They're signing 360 deals, so they're never going to make money on touring like they should, you know, especially with new stuff like Live Nation saying all fees are going to be dropped by 20 or 30%. It's like, it's just going to kill live music. Bands just aren't going to be able to make a living out of it anymore. And, you know, we know it hasn't been easy, you know, even for us to be able to do you know, we release an album and our tours are a few weeks long now, you know, as opposed to we'd be out all summer. We'd be out for 12, 16 weeks and then go home. And then like you were saying earlier, it's like go home and just like have such a hard time getting back into normal life, especially when like New York, no one knew who we were. No one gave a fuck who we were. You know, you come from England and stuff, you walk down the street and everyone wants pictures with Huey and then we go back to New York and it's like, ugh. So it wasn't like a depression would kick in. It was just a completely different life. You know, it was like we woke up from the dream, but we actually were living the dream for many, many years. And I mean, you know, we still enjoy writing music. We still enjoy performing. Definitely performing is where it's at. So that's what just hurts for us and so many other bands. It's just we can't go out and do shows for people. And we're not going to be doing live stream shows and stuff. It's just, you know, we actually talked about it a couple months ago doing some stuff and it just just didn't make sense. There was no, no way to make it where it was something we would be proud to do. You know, we could do it and give to charity and all that stuff, but it's like just didn't didn't work out. So, yeah, I think if you're going to do it, like the only one I've watched and, in, and enjoyed was uh, the Dropkick Murphys did a show live from Fenway Stadium in Boston and that was really? that was killer because they performed on the pitch and they did this whole like lead up to it where they explained the history of the team and the stadium and the town and they got loads of Boston like celebrities whether they're comedians or actors to drop in throughout and they it was like a huge huge production and it was an arena show obviously with no crowd and that was incredible but the amount of money that it must have cost I think they had a sponsor who who covered the cost I think um, but the amount of effort and you know, money that that would that would take to to realize something of that scale and that quality. Um, you know, you've got to be so invested rather than just sitting up. You know, either in an empty venue or you know, even worse, in your front room, just yeah, with a camera yeah. up. We we just we I, mean, I don't even think the three of us talked about whether we really wanted to try and do that. We mentioned it to the managers, saying, "See what you know, feel, see what people are feeling. If there's any." opportunities we're open to discuss things but our management knows it's like oh, these guys ain't gonna like that let's not even tell them <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's because good. Thing, if, if you're not playing for people you know and see and feeding off each other then 
I don't, there's, there's ulterior motives for doing it, you yeah. know? And it's like, we're, everyone's suffering to try and get paid these days. So to go do something like that, that just won't reek, it just won't be genuine just to make, you know, a few thousand pounds. It don't make sense. Well, hopefully good things happen to those that, you know, that wait and waiting just that little bit longer and holding out. I mean, can you imagine? I'm so excited about playing a proper show again and being on stage again and being in a room with humans again. But I would sooner wait for that and for the right time. You know? Yeah, I agree. And I am. We, we all are. We all are waiting <laughs> however long it is. But I mean, in the meantime, it's like we've got an album that we're, we're finishing up that we're, we're excited for people to hear. You know, the last album we put out was a covers record. Did that, the Mary Jane, the Tom Petty cover. Incredible. Yeah, I, I really oh, like thank that one. You. <clears throat> That's nice of you. And it, it's cool. Cause it seems like everybody may have one or two songs on there that they like and the rest are like, whatever. And we're exactly the same because that record was more an experiment for us to see what it's going to be like getting into the studio. Cause before that we didn't put our record until 2010. And that was the one I was telling you about where we're basically emailed each other, the parts for the record and then emailed it to our engineer in New York to mix. <clears throat> so it, it just didn't, wasn't a genuine record that we were proud of. And this covers record was sort of, let's just put that out for now and see what happens. And, you know, we were not big fans of that record. But this new one we're writing, we actually are really looking forward to doing it. It's, it's original music and stuff we think, you know, with a lot of samples in there because we're not, we're, we went back to the early days of not having the rules because it seemed like as the laws of sampling changed over the years, our kind of attitude towards, you know, do we want to, is it really important to use this sample in a song knowing that that person's going to want 100%? of the ownership of the song now where it used to be fair in the nineties, you know, we were sampling relatively big bands and they just break it down going, well, it's a small part of just the verses. So we'll take a third of the song. Cool. You know, Tarantino was like, I'll take a third of the song. Cool. Nowadays, it's like you try to clear the littlest thing. They want a hundred percent. And that's a lot of that. Thanks to Puff Daddy. And, uh, um, I'll be missing you. Track. Yeah. It's like Sting said it put them through college, but, um, put more of his kids through college, but it was like, you know, that's not really being killed, creative. Killed hip hop in the process as well. <laughs> Big time. I mean, it's just like a, a rip of that song and then just looped over and over and over again. And for us, sampling was more about like manipulating the sound and making multiple samples fit that were in different genres of music. So yeah, well it's like using an, an, the samples as an instrument, isn't it? And creating something new with, that existing if you want to call it a chord just taking yeah. that combining it with something else building something up i also loved the uh the first mimosa album that you guys did that was a huge record for me and my friends growing up like we'd always have that on whenever we were having like barbecues or afternoon smokeouts or it's that perfect kind of like sunny afternoon party record uh that we used to session all the time and would love like the smooth lounge like chill versions of a lot of those songs a crazy train and stuff uh, crazy tra- did the aussie ever get uh back to you on his thoughts on that no i mean that was the thing <laughs> is we never really wanted to reach out for them. we always went with the prince situation where we figured no one's gonna like it so we're not gonna have people reaching out to him and but if, if he did like it that's that's awesome we thought it was really it was kind of funny it was all Obviously, there's a big element of tongue-in-cheek with everything we do, but yeah. um, we love doing that Mimosa record because we've recorded most of it in Hawaii. And so writing some music, naturally, if you're in Hawaii, it's going to sound 
you know, like that record. So with another mimosa, it was similar. It was just not written in Hawaii. It was written in central London, more or less, you know, and recorded. So it has a different vibe. But I think a lot of people, when they heard, oh, another mimosa, great, they thought it was going to be like that record. But yet again, we kind of surprised but not in the best way with this record. The original one was fun. It's my dad's favorite album of ours. So, yeah, it's a great. I mean, those first three are just for me like flawless. They still stand up. They sound of their time and yet timeless. And uh, I think they were so synonymous with with that time that I think anybody who grew up with them, they they were the soundtrack to you know really good moments and and happier, as you said before, like freer, easier, more relaxed, carefree times. Yeah, I mean, and at the, you know, we just never really, you never really worried. I mean, obviously, a big part of that is when you're young, you think the world is yours, and but obviously, as you get older, and when when you do have things like children, you get to relive your youth again through your kids' eyes. But at the same time, it's just that element of worry, you know. So I guess you know, you we were talking before about how people that have been in this lockdown by themselves, how hard it's been for them. And again, you know, it might have been easier when you're actually being locked down physically with people that are in your family or roommates and stuff. But again, just for kids, it's it's a crazy world. We worry about kids a lot. Yeah, it's a trip. But hopefully, you know, yeah, now that Epstein's dead and Jis Lane or whatever her name is, she'll probably ain't going to last till her trial next year. But that's a big thing. Big thing is just taking care of kids and trying to provide kids with a future that they can at least just be happy. And at the time being, just be innocent, happy kids. That's the job, be kids. I've really enjoyed chatting to you, man. This has been really just chill and uh, and really enjoyable. And thank you so much for That's taking cool, the time man. to do it, man. We'll have oh, to do one face-to-face yeah. -face, uh, yeah, a later totally. date, and we'll have to go for a pint sometime as well. When the pubs oh, we'll when the pubs have stopped taking down fucking details and <laughs> ru ruining the vibe with PPE screening everywhere, <laughs> I went to my first pub yesterday and did the barcode thing and was all excited to order a pint. You know, as I walked through the pub, I saw there's like 15 different draft beers. I was like, this is awesome. And on the little app that came up, the website to order, there was and this is outrageous for England, but it was literally the only bottled beer was Coors Light and Budweiser. <laughs> And the only draft beer was Guinness or a um, like a Brewdog IPA, which was fine for me. But it had so many other great drafts that it was like, oh, no, we don't have that. I was like, but you have it right there. It's like, yeah, but we don't have it hooked up. It's like, damn. So it's like, yeah, pubs are open, but they're not open the way people want them to. But still, I got to admit, it was kind of nice just to sit outside and have a pint. Although social distanced. <laughs> <laughs> and but it's what it is but yeah man we'll have to do this maybe we'll do the face to face in Amsterdam then yeah for sure man that sounds That'd like the one, one. alright dude Matt, yeah thank you so much man I really appreciate it no thank you and uh, until oh, we good. meet for, for real um, take care <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah man. you too good luck good luck and, and definitely get out man get out and go for walks and stuff That's... you're not losing your mind being by yourself it's the worst I just climbed up Snowdon over the weekend and it was... I saw the pictures. That's amazing. It incredible. Like I'm aching all over today, but it's totally worth it. <laughs> That's amazing, man. Well, cool. Well, until until next time, man. You have a good week, bro. You too. Cheers, Fast. All right. See you in a bit, Take man. Take care, man. Bye.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.